0: Hi and welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships. I'm Rabbi Brentheim Spodek up in the Hudson Valley and on each episode we mine the depths of the Jewish tradition to see what we can learn about how we can show up in our relationships with our partners, our parents, our children, our friends better how we can do the hard work of loving other human beings better. This time, I am thrilled to be joined by Brandon Stratt, who is an Australian psychotherapist, facilitator, and leadership trainer. As a therapist, he works with individuals and couples who are navigating trauma, grief, and relational challenges. And outside of the therapy office, he can be found designing and facilitating leadership programs and gatherings of transformation for teams and organizations around the world. He has a number of remarkable fellowships, one of which, the Schusterman Fellowship, is one we share, which is how we know each other. And I can say personally, having sat in workshops with Brandon in the U.S., in Israel, with all sorts of groups of people who really wanted to be out on the beach playing, how much Brandon is able to help people get in touch with their own souls. I've seen him do it for many other people. I've seen him do it for me. And I'm so glad and grateful to get to learn some Torah with you, Brandon.
1: It's such a joy to be here with you, Brent. Thank you for the opportunity and the invitation.
0: We're going to take a look at a bit of Talmud together, and just by a bit of quick review, the Talmud is essentially an 800-year conversation about how to live. The rabbis of the beginning of what we think of as the common era, at the moment when the Roman Empire was rising, wrote what amounts to an auto-anthropology of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. This is how we take care of our crops and our holidays and wars. This is how we do all of our things. And then for a few hundred years, there were conversations about it. And those conversations, like a conversation does, jumps from a story to a joke to a serious legal dispute to maybe a recipe to a funny thing that happened on the way to the synagogue. And that all gets collected into what we know as the Talmud. And the story we're going to look at is from a part of the Talmud called Kiddushin. So here's the story. There was a sage named Palimu. And every day he'd say an arrow in the eye of Satan, mocking him as if Satan had nothing on him. And one day, it was the eve of Yom Kippur, And I'm imagining, the text doesn't say this, but I'm imagining Palimu gathered with his family as one does before Yom Kippur, having a festive meal, maybe dressed in his synagogue finery, his white garments, getting ready to Kol Nidre for the holiest moment of the year. And he hears a knock at the door. So he goes and he opens the door and it's a pauper. Now we, the readers, know that that pauper is actually Satan, but Palimu doesn't know that. And so Satan says to him, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm I'm so needy. Can you give me something? And Palimu says, fine. Goes inside, gets some bread, brings it to him, closes the door. There's a knock on the door again. And the beggar says, no, what? Everybody is inside eating and I'm going to be outside? And Palimu says, fine. Come on in, sits him down in the kitchen, gives him a plate of bread, goes back into the dining room with all of his family. And I'm now imagining Satan's head popping out of the kitchen into the dining room saying, excuse me, I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I noticed that everyone is sitting here in these fine clothes at the table and it looks so nice and warm. And I don't know if you know, but I'm all by myself in the kitchen. Could, could I just come and sit with you here? was like, okay, fine. He comes and sits at the table. And what do you know, this pauper who now has gotten the seat at the table, he starts coughing, he starts picking his pimples, he's picking his nose, he's just generally operating in a terrible, disgusting way. And Palimu says to him, I'm imagining the frustration, sit up. This is not how you eat. Stop doing this. The pauper says, give me a cup. They give him a cup and he coughs up some phlegm and spits it into the cup. And Palimu at this point has just had enough. He's like, you can't do this. You can't sit at my table and do this. And the pauper dies. (laughs) <laughs> now we've got a problem, right? So, Palimu is freaking out, and he starts hearing voices saying, Palimu has killed a man! Palimu has killed a man! Palimu freaks out, and he goes, and he he runs, and he hides in the outhouse, in the latrine, right? This is 2,000 years ago. It's outside the latrine. He's shivering in the latrine, trying to figure out what exactly is the move if you've killed a pauper before going to synagogue on Erev Yom Kippur, when the pauper, lo and behold, walks into the outhouse. And at this point, the pauper reveals himself to not be a pauper, but to be Satan. And Satan says to him, What's going on? <laughs> why why did you why do you go around saying an arrow in Satan's eye? Why do you go around saying, I've got nothing on you? And Palimu says, I'm I'm so sorry. I clearly I'm I am i am so sorry. What should I have said? And Satan says to him, let the master, i.e. let you, Palimu, say, may the merciful one rebuke the Satan. And that's it. The story ends. So my wise and therapeutic-minded friend, I ask, what jumps out at you about this story?
1: Well, I don't know how wise I am, but let's dive in. Um, Obviously, this is not just a story about any sort of encounter between people. It has some relevance to our perhaps intimate relationships, the people with whom we become engaged or marry. It happens on the eve of Yom Kippur, which is this really holy day in our calendar filled with like big themes around purity and sanctification and life and death and judgment and But what we're actually reading is quite a disgusting story, like in terms of how Satan appears in the story with the boils and the pus, and like he's quite a rubbishy guest who comes into into the home. So I'm also just thinking about that almost polarity between there's something here about Yom Kippur, but also the disgusting nature of what comes into our space in the presence of what is meant to be glorified or sanctified. When I begin to read the actual text, I guess the first thing that really strikes me is this opening line where Palemus says an arrow in the eye of Satan, mocking the temptations of the evil inclination. And here, I mean, I just find this absolutely fascinating because I think that so often we go through our lives and we go through our relationships feeling or believing that we are above temptation, that we are above the evil inclination that we are kind of safeguarded from doing wrong or saying the wrong thing or offending someone. And yet we're human, right? We can be easily seduced by these very things in the way we might choose to speak to our partner or the way we might choose to speak to our kids or how we engage with our neighbors or our colleagues at work or what actions we take or don't take. I feel like in this world we live in today, there are many temptations out there that we can be easily seduced by, and to to kind of move through life thinking that we are immune from those temptations or those risks, I think is short sighted. We aren't always as noble as we think we are, and <laughs> I think that is is very important, particularly in our intimate and closer
0: relationships. Yeah, I want to dig in on that a little bit because I feel like part of what I'm imagining uh, on it being air of Yom Kippur is a certain self satisfaction. And I think that, I mean, I do, and I think most people do, and I imagine Palimu does, has a certain vision of ourselves that is how we like to see ourselves, right? At a deeper level, we think we're not actually worthy of being loved for the mess-ups that we are, so we carry this vision of ourselves in our head, right? The improved version, the version that's worthy of being loved, the the 150% better version, and then we go put a whole lot of energy, arguably the majority of our life force, into maintaining that image of ourselves and making sure that nothing disrupts that image of ourselves. And I feel like so much pain in my own life has come from trying to maintain a story in which I'm better than I am or collapsing into the inverse, right? I'm so terrible. I'm beyond redemption. I'm just I'm I'm a loser baby. Why don't you kill me? And just sort of settling into a place of like yeah, I've got some stuff to deal with. You know, nothing major, haven't killed anyone, but I've got stuff to deal with. But that actually is hard one. And I I see Pulimo here and I actually have a lot of sympathy for Pulimo in this moment of like It's Erev Yom Kippur. I've got everything the way it should be. I'm wearing the right clothes. None of the kids are fighting. I'm going to synagogue. I know where I'm sitting. I've got my page. I am doing the right Jewish thing. Who the hell is this guy at the door bringing a different image of myself? That is not the image I'm looking for right now.
1: Absolutely. And I think we do like to sometimes see ourselves quite favorably, especially in our relationships. Mm. And think about so many of the couples that I see in my office here in Sydney or virtually on Zoom, where it's often the same trope that one partner will tell me. It's all, you know, the fault, the problem is all in the other person. right? Of course. I'm the right one. I'm the good one. I've done everything correctly, and therefore I'm the victim because I'm the victim to this other person's issues and problems and faults and needinesses and all that kind of stuff. So I think we are sometimes attached to this idea that we are, we are the saint. We are the sanctification of Yom Kippur. We are the we are the good one. And I think that it takes a lot of courage to put ourselves on the line and to consider what is that less noble story about ourselves. You know, how might we actually be getting in the way of what's happening in a relationship or how are we contributing to the dynamic that's playing out with our partner in a relationship? And I'm talking primarily about an intimate relationship, but sure. it could really be any connection or relationship. And I think that sometimes we need to step outside of ourselves and step outside of our ego to see things from the other side. Like, you know, I always like to ask my clients, how is your partner experiencing you in this moment? How do you think your partner is experiencing you in this moment or in this situation? What's it like for them? You know, are we really attuned to what the other person is saying or needing or wanting or desiring? These are really hard things to do, but how can we actually find that sort of deeper empathy And how can we offer that to people that we're in relationship with? And I think a lot here about something that Alexandra Solomon talks about in her work, where she says that my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. Mm -hmm. Like we're both in our stuff, right? We both have a part to play. And in order for me to recognize that part of that equation is my stuff, I also need to step outside of this favorable lens into which I often may lock myself.
0: So why do you think we do that? And I love the way you, you put that, that favorable lens into which I lock myself, because th- there is something sort of imprisoning about it. And I don't think it's just me. I mean, I think most people or certainly most people I know have this favorable image and there's a little voice in their head that tells them that they know it's not entirely true. And yet they, we, I cling to it so dearly. Why do you think that is?
1: I think that sometimes there can be a you know a little g grandiosity that's attached to that to that favorable view of ourselves. And if we consider what may be happening behind that veneer of grandiosity, there may be, as you were alluding to before, some sense of insecurity or doubt of oneself. Like maybe I in my core I might feel that I'm not good enough. Maybe I I feel that I'm maybe not lovable. Maybe I feel that I'm not deserving of someone's love or of connection or of family of relationship, there may be a whole series of kind of other less favorable stories going on for ourselves at that deeper core level. However, the thing is that to be explicit about that is quite an act of vulnerability and courage. And we don't like to do that necessarily. So rather than showing the vulnerability, we'll show this kind of first sense of bravery or courage or mastery. So I'm wonderful, I'm great, I'm the favorable one. But sometimes that's really a mask for what's going on beneath the surface. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I gotta say what's what's coming up for me is so you know, I tell my kids I love them. That's easy, right? I mean, okay, I'm a dad, I have kids, I love my kids. Okay. What I came to much more recently, like much more recently, my kids are, my youngest one is almost a teenager, was being able to say, I trust that you love me. Mm -hmm. And at first, like when I started playing with this idea, it felt like grandiose to say, I'm going to say that you love me. And then I I spent some time thinking about it. I I spent an unreasonable amount of time thinking about it and realizing these are my kids. Like, Like this isn't an unreasonable grandiosity, but I don't think but actually owning and trusting that they loved me and owning and trusting that they saw me screw up every day. Right. Yeah. And they see me as a fallible dad and I trust that they love me. Mm -hmm. There was something almost liberating in feeling like, okay, I can stop pretending I'm, you know, master of the universe or even that I can tie my shoes on a consistent basis. They see me as a flawed human person. They see me as a flawed dad. And I trust that they love me. Yes. That felt like a big turning point in my relationship with my kids.
1: Beautiful. And there's almost an appeal in there too. Like, I also want to know that you love me. Yeah. Or I need to know that you love me. Even when you see me as fallible. Yeah. I still need your love. And to put that out into the world that I need your love. I want your love. I want to be loved by you. Is a tender, vulnerable, courageous thing. I think that's such a beautiful thing.
0: You know, it can be. But so now here, like, all right, so we've got this moment. I'm just jumping back into the story. Yeah. We have Satan sort of making it hard for Palimu to maintain his sense of himself as this great, beautiful, holy person. But then he does things at the table that are sort of gross. Right. Or put differently, they are violations of the unspoken norms that make up society. And on the one hand, I can have a certain Rahmana, a certain uh, empathy with Palimu, you know, shouting at exasperation at his guest. You can't pick your nose and spit in the cup at the table. That's just not how we do things. While also saying, like, maybe that's not the best way to have done that. But I'm curious, both in this dynamic with Palimu and more generally in our relationships, on the one hand, we have to accept that the people we love are human, and they're going to screw up, and they're going to mess up, and part of loving them is recognizing they're human beings and accepting some degree of human fallibility. But, you know, and, and cases of abuse are an obvious and egregious example, but even on a more mundane level our partners, our children, our parents might do things that we feel like we can't just accept. We have to, in some way, and hopefully in some healthy and productive way, engage. I'm wondering here, both sort of in this specific moment at the table and more generally, what might have been a more productive way, you think, for Palima to say, hey, buddy, you got to do something about this nose picking at the table. It's not okay. Like, how could he have said that well?
1: Mm -hmm. It's a great question. There's a little framework that I sometimes use and try to teach to some of my clients. I don't know the official name of this framework. I've heard it referenced as XYZ statements. Okay. But we'll, I'll explain it and you'll tell me if it makes any sense. It begins with when you, that's like the first prompt. So when you pick your nose at the table as an example. Yeah. And what we want to pay attention to there is that whatever it is that you're going to use to reference in the when you, that it's something observable, that it's actually real, that it's very specific. Okay. It's not like when you're an awful person to me, uh-huh. right? that's way like, too vague or out there or like you can't really touch it or pinpoint it. But yeah, when you sit there at the table and pick your nose, like we all know that that has just happened. We're watching it. We're at the table with you, right? So when you do that, I feel. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel hell. I feel maybe disrespected. I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed. I feel angry. I feel whatever you feel. Right. And then that is followed by the the Z, the XYZ. The third part is because. Right. And I feel the way I feel because let's have a think. Why, why would I feel embarrassed that you're when you're sitting at the table picking your nose, because maybe I've got other guests at the table and that's not their norm. Uh And I don't need to handle that in, in your presence or because maybe I'm sitting here in my finest garb waiting to go to Yom Kippur and we're entering this very holy sacred moment in time of our calendar. And this just feels disrespectful to me. right? Whatever it is, but it's it's really unpacking. Yeah. See, what we often do in our relationships is we like to accuse yeah. you are this, you are that, you said this, you, you're awful, you're you, 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 you. But this is a way to really own what's happening for you as the speaker in the presence of the other person's action or behavior. So when you've done
0: X, I feel Y, because of Z. Uh-huh. So you're naming a specific concrete thing right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of, it's not a question of interpretation. The interpretation you move into yourself, right? Mm-hmm. If, I, if I'm getting this right. So like you've done this observable thing and I felt this subjective thing. I'm going to explain why I felt this subjective thing. Yes. And I, yeah, I can see a number of things happening there. So one of the things that would seem that that's doing is sort of separating out for lack of better terms right now, sort of the observable and the experiential. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, one might have all sorts of feelings in response to this act. This is mine.
1: Exactly.
0: And it also sounds like it elicits concern. Right. Because if if we're in some sort of relationship and you care about me and I'm expressing, I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel betrayed. I'm sort of counting on or hoping that you as someone who cares about me is like, oh, no, Brent, you're feeling betrayed that's terrible. What can I do about that? Oh, oh, it's something I'm doing, right? But it it moves the focus to the feelings and invites the other party as a partner, as opposed to opponent. Am I, is this all sounding right?
1: Absolutely. That's right. It's more collaborative. And there's a lot more disclosure that can happen in this form of connection or conversation, because I'm sharing with you how I feel. And I'm also going to tell you a little bit about why I feel that way, right? So rather than accusing you, I'm actually trying to meet you in the conflict or in the tension and share something about how I'm experiencing you in this moment. And I own that that's subjective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's important because we often try to make it objective. You are this, you are that. We try to make those objective statements.
0: Well, and also I feel like by we, I mean, I <laughs> also tend to make them global statements, right? Statements yeah. of identity. Yes. You're disrespectful right yes as opposed to you are doing this thing which is making me feel dishonored in an uncomfortable way for this reason right mm-hmm. you are disrespectful is an attack and it's a categorical thing right exactly
1: and when we go into attack mode we feel that we have some power in the conversation or in the moment and that's what can become a bit kind of addictive to us because we want to feel feel powerful we want to feel that favorable sense of self like we're right right you know we've got this right we we are the victim here we're the one being disrespected at the table by you you're the pro- you're the problem you're the fault yeah and this is just a way to kind of turn it on its head and say actually look we're both having an experience right now at this table and when i experience what you're doing this is how i engage with that moment this is how i interact this is what happens for me on the inside Can we meet there? Can we have a conversation about that? And that's suddenly a very different conversation off the battlefield.
0: Yeah. It's like in order to, in order to be happy, you have to give up being right, right? If I can be like, "Ah, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to beat you and I'm going to be victorious, woo, but then, then there's nothing. But if, if I can be like, oh, okay, I might've messed up a little bit. Maybe you messed up a little bit. Maybe, you know, okay, that then we could go on and, and into a happier place. But I don't get that, that cheap, quick thrill of victory.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's a trade-off, but I think it's a worthy one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not always easily done in the
1: moment, but worthwhile. But you know, that's an important piece too, just on that, because sometimes I think we expect ourselves or we put a pressure on ourselves to attend to all of these things correctly in the moment. Mm. I've got to catch it. I've got to stop myself. I've got to catch myself. I've got to intercept what's going on in the moment. And maybe there's something to that. But I also think that these are the sorts of conversations that can also happen after the fact. And be like, you know, honey, last week when we were at that table with those people and with those guests and we're talking about X, this is what happened for me when I heard you say or when I saw you did this. And I've been reflecting on it for the past week. And what I realized is that I then felt whatever I felt because. So sometimes we can also be a bit more forgiving to ourselves. that It doesn't have to be in the moment, yeah. but it can come later as well.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically in relationships, sort of recognizing that the goal isn't to be perfect. It's the self-correcting impulse, the self-correcting dynamic. Exactly. Because I'm very mature. I think of this as like, I'm embarrassed to even ask this, but have you ever seen the X-Men? I never watched it. I'm afraid. <laughs> <sighs> I've heard of it. Well, there's this character Wolverine. Yes. They, so what one of Wolverine's superpowers is that he heals amazingly quickly. Right. So, you know, somebody attacks him with a samurai knife and 30 seconds later, he's entirely healed. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of think about that as a emotional superpower, right? It's not that you're not going to get cut in your relationships. And I'm not, God forbid, talking about physical cutting. That's not at all what I mean here. But there will be those ouch moments in relationship. And the question of bringing some mindfulness and some skill to it is not, do you never get cut? But when you get cut, does that heal like Wolverine fast? Or does that fester for weeks and weeks? Mm -hmm. And, um, That's, you know, it's it's something that that I think can be developed. But jumping back into the story here. So there's this moment where he's hearing these voices. They heard saying, Palimu killed a man, Palimu killed a man. And some of the traditional commentators on the text already start debating, were those voices he heard out in the street or were those voices he heard in his own mind? It's unclear in the text and it's unclear in the tradition, but I'm wondering what what do you think's going on there in this moment where Satan sinks down and dies or seems to, and Polimus having this feeling, this feeling like I've killed someone. What, what do you imagine's mm-hmm. going on there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, at least in the English
1: translation that I'm reading. It says that Limu hid himself Mm -hmm. after all. And we'll talk about where he hid himself in a moment, I'm sure. we definitely um, need to talk about that. I just want to speak to the idea of hiding oneself because when I read that, I have to imagine that the feeling that he's feeling in that moment is one of shame
0: Mm.
1: and hide is often the feeling that is associated with the feeling of shame. When we're in our shame, we don't want to be seen by other people. We literally want to hide. We want to cover our, cover ourselves so that we can't be seen and we want to remove ourselves from a situation or go to another room. This is a feeling that we don't like to to have publicly witnessed our shame. So my, my interpretation, my reading of that is that Limu's feeling a lot of shame. And I have to imagine that that shame is also the result of the kind of contradiction between the accusation of killing someone and seeing himself so favorably. Mm-hmm. In that he kind of meets a part of himself that maybe he's disgusted by too in himself, yeah. right? The very hard truth for us to, to to sit with. And yet it's kind of true, right? As terrifying and terrible as it sounds. So when there is such a discrepancy in our view of self, that can be quite shaming or shameful. And I imagine that's why he hides. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that
0: one? Yeah, I mean, for me, it feels very much like the other side of the binary. And I feel like I've had to go through all of them, right? And the moments when something in your, or by your, I mean mine, um, something in my self-awareness breaks, right? And the story I'm telling about what a great guy I am and how I'm so this and yeah. that breaks. And what emerges immediately as step two is... Oh my god, it's all my fault. I'm the worst. And, you know, this is this is the opposite of the Wolverine. You know, this is the uh, I think it was Beck. I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? But just the feeling of like I'm worthless. I'm terrible. I'm I'm dirt, particularly in primary relationships. It took me a long time to recognize that that's actually also a defense mechanism, because if I do that, then I'm inviting my other person to reassure me that I'm not really that bad, because, in fact, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't done anything so terrible, right? I don't don't say that as as, oh, so it's not a big deal. I've caused pain. I've hurt people I love. But if I totally collapse, I'm the worst, then it sort of excuses me from doing the Incremental, imperfect, embarrassing, difficult work of marginal improvement. If I'm beyond mm-hmm. hope, I'm beyond hope. I'm off the hook. I don't have to do anything. If I'm just exactly. like so so, then I have to work at getting better.
1: And rather than being in your accountability, you're now the one being comforted yeah. by someone else.
0: Can you say more what that phrase means being in your accountability?
1: Or rather than owning up to your part in what's happened or in the dynamic or what? Maybe you've done something or said something and there's been a real consequence to to that action rather than kind of being in your accountability, owning up to it, being in your responsibility for that. You're now being comforted by someone else and someone else is trying to reassure you, oh, you're not such a bad person. You you did wasn't that that bad, you know, and then it kind of rescues us from from owning up to our part because remember my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. And sometimes we just need to be accountable and responsible for our stuff.
0: Yeah. I might even put it more simply. Your stuff plus my stuff equals us. Like, that's it. There's just, you know, you, me, and all the stuff that we're so afraid of. That's that's all there is to us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the story, the the denouement happens in, in the outhouse, which uh, I think captured your attention. What do you make of that, that of all the places, that's where you ran to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of this as, as a metaphor, so deeply fascinating and rich and robust.
0: <laughs> Tell me, Dr. Um, Freud, what do you make of this?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think of the outhouse, the bathroom, as like a huge symbol here. It's quite an astounding symbol because the bathroom is a, is a place of ablution. It's where we go to cleanse ourselves, to rid ourselves, of that which we consider to be toxic or dirty. And, you know, we're not, uh, the story doesn't say that he goes to the lounge room or the bedroom (laughs) or the front room or the the kitchen, you know. There's something also very private about going to the bathroom. It's generally a space that we enter and experience alone, right? And it's, it's a place where we kind of meet and encounter these parts of ourselves that we wish to kind of rid ourselves of And in the face of this shame or fear or regret or whatever he's feeling, this is where he goes. And I think that sometimes we need to really touch our shame in order to have our eyes open, because there's something, you know, really to kind of just play on the, the imagery here. There's something about being in the bowels of our experience that can actually be the catalyst for learning something new about ourselves if we're open to it and i think that's what happens ultimately in the story when when satan comes back to talk to him i think he has at least i like to, i'd like to believe that he has this kind of moment of realization but it happens in the bathroom like it happens in the very place where he he meets and encounters the bowels of of his of who he is
0: yeah it's the inverse you know in there i was all dressed in white and i was fancy yeah. and we were having our our uh, our festive meal before yom kippur Right. This is all this is showtime. But, you know, the real work is happening there in the outhouse. And the other thing is that as you mentioned, we tend to go to the outhouse by ourselves, and yet yes. everybody does it. Yes. Everybody does it. Exactly. Okay. And but nobody does it publicly. That's right. And you know, just sort of sticking with the metaphor, I think on the bathroom hygiene level, I, that sort of privacy is great and wonderful. But recognizing that everybody, you, me, the president of the United States, the whoever it might be, has, let's say, stuff to deal with. And that's right. My partner has stuff to deal with, my kid has stuff to deal with. And we're all a little ashamed of it, even as we all recognize that we all do it. Exactly. And I find there's something that elicits my compassion there. Of just like mm-hmm. oh yeah that's right you're another person with a body that's got aches and pains and needs and desires and funny smells oh okay yeah what do you know another person that poops also screws yeah. things up oh hey you know what I'm also a person who poops and screws things up nice to meet you, you. let's let's meet in our imperfection and see what we can see what we can do together. But
1: um, my late grandmother always used to tell me as a child. That the now late Queen, <laughs> not for someone who poops, right? Yeah, she's just who And in a sense, I kind of think that this moment in the outhouse is almost the Yom Kippur moment in the story, where he he has that deeply human moment of realizing that he's not above anyone else, right? Yeah. He's just like anyone else. We're all just the same in that regard, right? We're humans. We're fallible. We. We need to go to the bathroom. We experience shame, all these sorts of things. And that we all are also, we can be seduced, all of us, by temptation as well and the evil inclination as the text says. So I think there's some real kind of moment of reckoning, of humility, of almost a shared humanity that he experiences in the bathroom, which to me is kind of a moment of Yom Kippur in a very obtuse way. (laughs)
0: Well, you know, it's an obtuse way, but, you know, this is a whole other conversation. The, you know, the practices of Yom Kippur are their traditions, their rituals, they're also technology. They're also supposed to affect some sort of purpose. And I think it's a open question at best to what extent the liturgical technology of Yom Kippur affects the purpose of helping people deal with their uh, emotional outhouse business, as it were.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So I want to, there's one line right at the end that I'm wondering what you make of. So Palimu asks Satan, okay, you know, you got me. I've totally messed this up. What should I have said? And he says, call out to God with the name Rahmana. Right? And let the merciful one, let her rebuke Satan. And Rahmana is a rich word. It's connected to mercy, compassion, but it's also connected to the womb, to the mother's womb. Right? So it's almost as if, you know, to read it over hyperliterally, it's as if Satan is saying to him, You should have asked the one full of mother's love, which is to say God, you should have asked the one full of mother's love to rebuke Satan. And I'm wondering what you make of invoking, there are so many ways the tradition has of calling out to the Holy One, calling out in this moment for the compassionate one, the merciful one, the womb-like one. What do you make of that name being invoked in this moment?
1: Mm, It's quite chilling, actually, as I hear you describe it in that way. Because it's in, to my ear at least, there's something about invoking the compassionate spirit in the story, but also in the self. Mm. And I, I think that where I in reading the text was thinking about how do we invoke compassion with ourselves in our lives and in our relationships and rather than kind of living on that plane of grandiosity that i'm bigger than i'm mightier than i'm higher than temptations or evil inclinations how do i also step into my humanity and humility to recognize that actually i can sometimes be seduced as well i'm just like everyone else and how can i be compassionate towards myself when I get triggered or when I kind of default from how I really want to show up in my life and in my relationships, and how can I be curious with myself about, you know, what happened for me in that moment? Why did I say what I said? Why, why did I do what I did? What was going on for me? What can I learn about myself? And kind of just coming towards the self with a bit more curiosity and a bit more compassion. That's kind of what I took from, from that line, I'm very curious to hear your
0: thoughts on that one too. I can't remember where I heard this phrase, but you know, it's one of these, probably, probably sort of on Facebook, hurt people hurt people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And recognizing, and I think this is where the compassion comes from or, or what the invoking of the Holy One with the name of the compassionate one calls to me is holding on to both realities at the same time that actually yeah. all of us are hurt people, who hurt people. We're also hurt people who love people and hurt people who caress people and hurt people who care for people. But we're all carrying around our wounds, our experiences, our traumas, our disappointments of our bodies, all of the stuff of our life. And the overwhelming majority of us try to do the best we can and screw up a lot. And so do I. And so does everyone. And just having some compassion for that, for everyone else and for ourselves, seems vital to any sort of way of living that's worthwhile.
1: That's right. And I think on that too, in that context of hurt people, hurt people, bringing some compassion into that doesn't justify, doesn't excuse the hurting of other people, right? It's not about that. It's about understanding ourselves. It's about how we engage with and approach ourselves, how we hold ourselves, how we relate to ourselves in the presence of those behaviors or actions. We are still, again, responsible and accountable for our behaviors and actions. And we can be compassionate with ourselves and curious with ourselves at the same time.
0: That feels so vital that compassion and accountability are not opposites. They're not antonyms. You can simultaneously, and, and maybe what the story is saying, it's not just that you can be, but actually you have to be simultaneously compassionate. And you can't pick your nose at the table, right? Like, I understand how you're feeling. I understand what you're coming from. And I need to hold you accountable. But doing it in, an, in a way that's full of compassion. Completely. Completely. Wow. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to to learn this bit of Kudoshin with me. It was such a pleasure and a delight to get to see you and learn with you. Hopefully sometime again soon.
1: I look forward to it, friends. I look forward to it.
0: Thank you to Brandon Srot for joining us all the way from Australia on Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. You can find Pardes at pardes.org.il online. You can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Facebook and Instagram or brent at pardes.org. And please be in touch with ideas about guests, texts to read, or anything else to discuss. Bye-bye.